What is better? We just sang that song, right? Jesus is better. But what is better? I mean, when you think about better, there are a couple possibilities with better. And one of those possibilities is that better is just simply an opinion, right? If we went around this room today and said, what's better, Georgia Tech or Georgia? We would get a lot of different opinions. If we went around this room and and put two songs out there, one from the Gettys and another from uh, Elevation Worship and said, hey, which one is better? We would get a lot of different opinions. And I think unfortunately in our culture, because we continue to further deny the reality of absolute truth, that better becomes relegated to nothing more than a statement of opinion. I prefer this over that. In my opinion, this is better than that. You see, there is another aspect of better, but it has to be based in absolute truth. And if not, then what happens when we sing a song like Jesus is better is all we're doing with our hands raised, maybe. We're saying, I prefer Jesus. I like Him more. I prefer Him to some of the other options out there. But if there is absolute truth, if the Word of God is objective truth, then we're not just raising our hands and lifting our voices and saying, I think Jesus is better. We're making a declaration that does not, is not based in my own personal opinion, but is a reality no matter how I feel or what I think or where I live or how I've grown up. That's why in that song we say Jesus is better and then what do we plead? What do we pray? Make my heart believe. Amen? Because opinions are something that come naturally. No one has to really force me to have an opinion. Just ask my wife. I've got plenty of them. I'm happy to share them with you. But what I do have to do is I ha- that other aspect of better, that has to be taught. And not just one time does it have to be taught. It has to be taught over and over and over again. What is truly better? Well, this morning we want to see a better king. And we want to see some oddities of disciples of this better king. Now, as Justin mentioned, we are in the Gospel of Mark, not the Gospel of John. And that's important because if you grab the Gospel of Mark and go to take a sip from it like it was the Gospel of John, you're going to be shocked. Like when you grab a drink and you think that it's one thing only to take a sip and realize that that was not sweet tea, it was watered down Coke. Mark is not John. Mark writes with a very different purpose. In fact, as you go through the Gospel of Mark, you're almost worn out because Mark is immediately, 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 immediately. And you're just like, whoa, slow down. In the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is presented as the Son of God who is the mighty servant. Servant indeed, but mighty, because all through Mark, the authority of Jesus comes through so clearly. He's authoritative in his teaching, and he demonstrates inconceivable power in his miracles. But there's this building clash in the Gospel of Mark. And one commentator puts it this way. He says, Mark 
made it clear that the mighty ministry of Jesus soon fell under the shadow of unbelief and open hostility. He was misunderstood, attacked, and rejected by the very people he came to serve and save because he did not fulfill their preconceived expectations concerning the Messiah. So by the time we come to our context, Jesus has already entered into Jerusalem in Mark chapter 11. He's entered into Jerusalem and he's cleansed the temple for the second time, demonstrating once again his incredible authority. He's taken up shop in that temple, in the court of the Gentiles. He won't even let anybody carry anything through. And there he sits and he teaches. And as he teaches, these religious leaders come to him and they test him. One test after the next. They test him. They test him on his authority. They test him on taxes. They test him on the resurrection. They test him about the greatest commandment. Until finally they've tried so many times in their testings of him that no one will dare ask him any more questions. Which is saying a lot because these men hated Jesus. In fact, Mark repeats after Jesus cleanses the temple that they wanted to destroy him. They wanted to kill him. And the only reason they didn't do it is because they feared the crowds. And so they thought maybe they could find a way to trip him up to make him stumble. And in the midst of all those tests, Jesus tells this parable of a, of a man who plants this vineyard and he does everything for the vineyard. And then he leases it out to tenants who turn out to be wicked tenants. Remember that parable? And as he tells that parable about these wicked tenants that beat the servants and kill servants that the, the owner sends at harvest time to come and get what's rightfully his, eventually he sends who? His own son. And those wicked tenants know this is the son and they kill him because he's the son. And Mark tells us that at the end of that parable, they weren't so happy because they perceived he was telling this parable about them. And so, now that they've kind of been silenced, Jesus turns and He goes on the offensive. And that's where we pick up in Mark chapter 12 and verse 35. This is what it says, And as Jesus taught in the temple, He said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David. Now, he poses that as a question, but it's not really a question because everyone believed that the Christ, the coming anointed one, would be a descendant of David. That was a given. It was clear in the Old Testament. No one was disputing that. He's just bringing that to their minds. This is what you believe, okay? All right, got that. David himself, verse 36 in the Holy Spirit, declared. Now what is he going to do? He's going to quote from Psalm 110, which is a psalm of David, and he quotes verse 1. The Lord, Yahweh, said to my Lord, Adonai, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. So now here's the question. David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. Crowds of people gladly listening to this. It's a simple question. And they have no reply. Everyone believes that the coming Christ was going to be a descendant of David. But if he was just 
another son of David, if he was just an earthly king, a physical king only, then there's no way that David would call him Lord. Now there are a lot of dynamics to this, Psalm 110, to this passage, but I think Jesus is driving home on one clear point to them. You see, they had preconceived notions of who the Messiah would be. They had the Messiah that they were hoping would show up, that's the one they wanted to show up. They wanted another king like David, a warrior king, to deliver them from their enemies, a a, a king that would reign over them. And, And honestly, David was an amazing king. But no one reads the history of David's life and goes, that was good enough. In fact, when you read the life of David, as great a warrior as he was, as honorable a king as he was, as godly a man as he was, you get to the end of David's life and you say, we need something better. We need someone better. And so they're looking for another earthly king just like David But the only way that this works, the only way that this psalm works is if the Christ was something greater than just a physical king. The only way this works is if the son of David is not only also the son of David, but just perhaps exactly the way Mark starts his gospel. He's the son of David and the son of God. Jesus was telling them that the Messiah that was sitting right there in front of them was greater than the Messiah that they were looking for. He was better than the king that they were looking for. And they had seen it because they had heard his authority in his teaching. They had seen the miracles that he had performed and yet they had made a decision. Because they decided as they heard the authority in his teaching and as they saw his miracles, they said, rather than to listen to what was clearly being being said in front of them, they decided that the power and authority that Jesus displayed was because he was possessed by Beelzebub, the prince of the demons. Mark chapter 3 and verse 22. And so right in front of them, is the Messiah that they are searching for, the Christ, the Anointed One, better than any expectation they could ever have, and they can't see it because they've esteemed their expectations greater than the Messiah. And so Jesus continues teaching, and I think He's laying out a positive and a negative example of what disciples of this better King look like. And I call them oddities because they are odd. Oddities of disciples of the better king. So let's look at the first one. The first oddity of a disciple of the better king is that they love those who are the least. They love those who are the least. Look at verse 38. And in his teaching, Jesus said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogue and the places of honor at feasts. Now, we can understand these things, right? I mean, we live in a culture where we esteem people based upon the clothes that they wear. Please don't start judging right now. 
But we esteem people based upon their clothing, the little emblem on their clothing, and those types of things, the cars that they drive. These men like to wear big, long robes. They like to have these huge tassels on the bottom of their robes, which goes back to the Old Testament. The bigger the tassel, the more spiritual you were. So you've got your big, flowing, long robe. They love greetings in the marketplaces, not because they were stoked on hospitality, but because they like to hear people call them teacher. And that respect that was shown when they'd walk into the marketplace and everyone would stop what they were doing and greet these men. And in the synagogue, they like to have those seats up front, which is like the exact opposite of here. Apparently, this is the row of shame at our church. But they, they love that place and they loved at feasts. They loved the place of honor. And again, it's easy for us to distance ourselves from these scribes. But come on, at Thanksgiving, nobody wants to get stuck at the kids' table. There is always that table and that place at the table. And you want to be as near to that place or in that place as you can possibly be. That's what these men were. They were proud, arrogant men. They were consumed with themselves. They were self-exalting because they thought they deserved to be exalted. Will Rogers, an old movie star from the 1920s and 30s, said this, and I thought it fits so well. Too many people spend money they haven't earned to buy things they don't want to impress people they don't like. That's these scribes. They didn't care about fashion. They didn't care about hospitality in the marketplace. They didn't care so much about what was being taught in the synagogues. They didn't care about the importance of the feast that they were attending. They didn't even like the people. They just wanted their praise. They were proud, selfish, arrogant men. It even says towards the end of verse 40 that they offered long prayers. Now here's the thing, we all know this too well because we've all wrestled with pride in our own lives that, that people, if they know a system well enough, they can work that system full of pride with wicked motives and not really tip their hand that they're motivated by pride. If I know the system well enough, I can show up at the Sunday gathering each Sunday with my nice outfit on, and I can have posted things that week on social media that make you think I've got it all together as a parent, and all together in my work, and all together in the places that I go, and I, I can just sell you on the fact that I've got everything together. And when we sing the right song, I know when to raise my hand, I know when to put my hand down, I know when to do kind of the white boy shuffle back and forth, I know when to pray and when not to pray and I know how long to pray and I know what words to pray and man you'll walk away going that guy that gal wow but I think if the things that Jesus lays out here of all the things that these men did that Jesus is saying he's exposing them and he's saying look you are whitewashed tombs there's death inside of you there was one area where the death was exposed and it's what he says at the beginning of verse 40. He says, who devour widows' houses. Now, scribes, from what I understand, did not get paid for what they did. They lived off of donations. 
And so, living off of donations, some of these men would seek to attach themselves to those, I know this is going to be a stretch because this never happens nowadays, these wicked men would seek to abuse their knowledge of the law and their position and their status to attach themselves to those who are weak and maybe perhaps at times make promises to them about what they would gain by supporting their ministry and work their way in and connect themselves particularly to these widows of means and they would suck them dry. So much so that some scholars say that these lawyers would use their knowledge of the law and their ability to gain access even to the will of these widows so that when that widow died, everything she had went to that scribe. Now this was exposing why. Well, it's exposing first of all because if you just look at the Old Testament, this is the exact opposite of what is commanded in the Old Testament. It exposed the fact that they didn't love the law that they were teaching and supposed to be studying. Deuteronomy chapter 24, just one example of this. Deuteronomy chapter 24 and verse 17 says, You shall not pervert the justice due the sojourner or to the fatherless or take a widow's garment in pledge. But you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. Therefore I command you to do this. When you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheath in the field, you shall not go back and get it. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat your olive tree, you shall not go over them again. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. When you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you shall not strip it afterward. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I command you, do this. So very clearly in the law, there is provision for the care of the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. There's no provision for the way to devour a widow's house. So one, they're exposing the fact that they don't love the law and they're not living by the law. But secondly, did you notice where these commands that God is making, where are they rooted? Where is he, where is he putting down the roots of these commands? He's saying, listen, do this because why? Because once you were oppressed. Do this because once you were poor. Once you were like that widow, you were like that sojourner, you were like the fatherless. You were oppressed in the land of Egypt as slaves. All that you have, you have by grace. You are not a self-made man or a self-made woman. Your life drips with the grace of God. If it were not for my intervention, you would still be slaves. You would be the sojourner in Egypt enslaved and oppressed and afflicted. So that's one reason. The second, though, is this. That God in His loving kindness, not because He needed Israel in any way, but because He chose of His sovereign good grace to deliver them. He didn't look at Israel's oppression and go, wow, those are such good people. That's such a shame what's happening to them. Because they're so good, I'll go down there and save them. He was not afflicted. 
He was not under the oppression of Pharaoh. He was in the heavens doing whatever he pleased. And in his good pleasure, he redeemed them. And so this is rooted in the very nature and attribute of God. In fact, in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 18, when, when God through Moses is talking about the circumcision of the heart, it says this, He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. That's speaking of God. This is how our God acts. Therefore, as people of God, this is how we should act. So it wasn't just that these men exposed the fact that they didn't love the law that they taught. They didn't love the God of the law. And as we come into the New Testament, we see the same thing, do we not? We all know James chapter 1, verse 37, religion that is pure and undefiled before the God the Father is this, to, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. And yet as much as I want to distance myself from these men, as much as I want to distance myself, because in Matthew, oh, in Matthew, Jesus goes off. 30 plus verses of woes over these religious leaders. And he says they are like whitewashed tombs. Nice and clean, pretty on the outside, and there's death inside. And I want to distance myself from them. I want to push away from them. And yet, if I'm honest, I like to judge myself by my best actions. My finest moments. I like to judge myself based upon how good my prayer was Sunday night when Howard was listening. How many times he said, mmm, mmm. Maybe that was a little too close to home. I want to judge my family's condition based upon how we behaved when the Culbertsons came over for dinner. I want to judge myself based upon my behavior on the Sunday gathering. And in fact, at the Sunday gathering, I do everything I possibly can to cover up the brokenness that has reeked from my life all week long. And then, if a broken person steps in my way, I don't have time for them. You see, a better standard of our commitment to Christ is not how we behave around the elders and how many times we can get them to grunt when we pray or how much we can get them to agree with what we post on social media. A better standard of our commitment to this better King is how we love the least of these. You see, just... A little later, after Jesus does this thing with the widow in chapter 13, these disciples who still don't quite get it, they're leaving the temple and they go, Hey Jesus, check out these buildings, man. Look at these things. Aren't they amazing? And Jesus says, let me tell you something. These things are going to be destroyed. There won't be one brick left upon another. And as they walk to the Mount of Olives, Jesus begins to explain to them things about the end times. And there on the Mount of Olives, in the Gospel of Matthew, in Matthew 25, Jesus talks about a coming final judgment. And in that final judgment, He says He's going to separate the sheep and the goats. And those who are on His right hand, He's going to say, enter into the kingdom. Why? What does He say? We know the passage, don't we? 
He said, because I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me to drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. Sick and you visited me in prison and you came to me. Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. So my question then is, well, where are the poor among us, right? Where are the poor? Maybe there are none. Well, if you were with us the other Saturday when we had that grace certification and you you listened to the number of statistics of people who have been sexually abused in their life, that would mean, folks, that there are people among us who have experienced that type of oppression, abuse, and brokenness. When you list off the number of broken marriages and the number of people getting divorced, they don't just all live out there somewhere. When you list the number of men that are addicted to pornography, they don't just go somewhere else on Sundays. They're right here among us. This type of love and commitment to the least of these starts here in the household of God. There are broken people among us, hurting people among us. And you know what repulses a hurting person more than anything else? Someone who acts like they've got it all together. Because they look at me as I'm beautifying myself. It takes a lot of work. I'm beautifying myself and I'm acting like I've got it all together and I'm praying my long prayers and I'm acting like I know all the answers and all week long I've done everything perfect. Everything that I cook has come out just right. Everything that I said, my kids were like, oh, Dad, you're amazing. And all that stuff all week long and they look at me and they go, I can't identify with that. How would I open up to that? If we don't have poor and broken people around us, it may be because the pride that fills our heart almost makes them camouflage. We fail to see them. But the disciples of a better king, the better king, will love the least of these. So let me ask you that this morning. Who who are the broken in your life? Who are the poor? Who are the people that you are giving to and you know they have no capacity to repay you? They have no way that they could give back to you. In fact, that's not even what you're doing. You are giving to them because this is the nature and character of the God, the King that you love. Right? He was the one when his disciples were debating about who would be the greatest when James and John came and said, God, can we, Jesus, can we sit at your right hand and at your left? He said, listen, fellas, it's not going to be like that among us. You're not going to just love those who love you and lend to those who can pay you back. You're going to love your enemy. And you're going to lend to those who can't pay you back because the Son of Man came to be served, right? No, He came to serve, not to be served. And to give His life as a ransom for many. And so like Him, like this better King, we love the least of these. Well, there's from a negative example, we move into a positive example. Jesus says that these scribes, because they understood the law and yet had rejected the Messiah, they would receive a greater condemnation. And then verse 41 it says, And Jesus sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people. 
putting money in the offering boxes. So Jesus has moved. He's moved from the court of the Gentiles into the court of the women. That doesn't mean it was only for the women. It just means the Gentiles weren't allowed. Jewish men and women were allowed in there. And there were 13 offering boxes that were there. And Jesus sits down and looks at them. Now Jesus can get away with this because he's Jesus. But it's weird. I mean, think about it. If today you found out that we had hidden cameras focused in on all the offering boxes at the exits to this room and all of the elders and deacons had an app on their smartphone and would watch how people put money in and who put it in and how much they put in, you'd be like, hmm, that's weird. And you'd be right. But this is Jesus. So he sat down opposite the treasury and it says he watched. This doesn't mean like a blank teenage stare. He was observing, he was perceiving, and in the, in the, in the uh, ESV, uh, it doesn't translate this well, he watched, but it says he watched how the people put money into the offering box. He's not just watching an action, he's, he's perceiving, he's observing how they're doing something. And so he sits there and he watches them put this money in and he makes this observation. Many rich people put in large sums. Now that is very, very ambiguous. Many rich people, we don't know how many, we don't know who they were, and they put in large sums. We don't know how much, we don't know what a large sum is, it's just a lot of people put in a lot of money. In fact, one person said that, that some of these rich people were known to go and exchange their silver coins, which they were wealthy enough to put in silver coins, for copper coins, so that there were more of them, so that they could spend longer dropping them in the box. Right? So we have lots of rich people putting money in. Verse 42, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins which make a penny. Now, this is clearly in contrast because this ambiguous crowd, now we're focused in on one poor widow. Now, her poverty was probably obvious in her clothing. It might have been obvious in her hair, in the dirt that was on her. It might have been obvious in her smell. We've all been around poor people that were that impoverished. How Jesus knew she was a widow, I don't know. But he did. And he sees her coming, and then he sees her put in two copper coins. Now, again, I don't know how Jesus knew she put in two copper coins. I don't think she was drawing attention to herself. Hey, everybody, hey, woo! Putting in two copper coins. Look at me. Why? Well, because those copper coins amounted to one sixty-fourth of a day's wage. This was like next to nothing. He calls it a penny, but don't think about like the penny that's in your pocket or that you don't like to have in your pocket. He's relating it to common Roman currency. This almost had zero value. It was seemingly insignificant, especially in comparison to these many rich people who were giving large sums of money. But Jesus sees something here that's so important that he calls his disciples to himself. Now when he talks about his disciples, he's speaking of his twelve. He calls them to himself and he says this, truly. Focus on this. Observe this. This is truth. Listen to what I'm about to tell you. I say to you, this poor widow. Now again, notice he uses the demonstrative pronoun. 
There were lots of people in the temple. It's Passover. There are tons of people. Did he point to her? I don't know. Did he kind of motion with his head or whatever? I I don't know. But somehow, as he calls the disciples to him, he wants them to see it's this woman, no one else, this woman. Unlike the ambiguous others, this poor widow. So he focuses in on her. This poor widow has put in more than all these who are contributing to the offering box. So Jesus uses the present tense. There are still people contributing. And I think the idea is she's putting in more than those who are presently contributing and all those who have contributed. I really think the idea is that Jesus is saying if you take everything that everyone has given, this woman has given more. Now, if this story ends there, we are all left going, Jesus does not know how to do math. Because it makes no sense. They're putting in large sums of money. She puts in two copper coins. It it doesn't add up. How does this work? So he explains, thankfully, in verse 44. For they all contributed out of their, what? Abundance. One translator working to translate this passage into another language decided to translate it this way. They put in money they didn't need. They gave out of their abundance in Jesus contrast that, but she out of her poverty, out of her lack, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. What's the difference here? Well, if we're on the side of how much they gave, then it makes no sense that this woman gave more. It doesn't add up. Where does it add up? Where did she give more? It's on the side of what was left over. You see, disciples of the better king lack any leftovers. I know some of you are excited about that because you hate leftovers. But that's not what I'm talking about. We're not talking about food. Disciples of a better king lack any leftovers. There's nothing left over. You see, it's noteworthy that this lady had two copper coins, which means she could have put in just one and kept one for herself. But she puts in everything, all that she had to live on. She has absolutely nothing left over. And Jesus wants His disciples to see this. He wants them to make note of this. Why? Because He's teaching on monetary giving. He wants them to go and sell everything that they have and bring it and put it in these offering boxes here in the temple? No. Because He's calling them to give everything they are with nothing left over. Luke chapter 9, verses 33 and 34, And He said to all, If anyone would come after Me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow Me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for My sake will save it. Jesus was calling these men to give everything. Not just their finances, but their talents, their abilities, their families, their very lives. He was saying, I am such a better king and what I'm calling you to is to lay down everything that you are. There will be no leftovers. Winston Churchill was quoted as saying, we make a living by what we get. We make a life by what we give. These men were called by this better king 
to do far more than invest in his kingdom so that they could have a nice diversified portfolio, a little bit in Jesus and a little bit over here on the side just for a rainy day. They were called to lay down everything. Now I know in our minds we think, wait a second, lay down everything. You can still do that with pride, right? Isn't that what 1 Corinthians 13 verse 3 says? If I give away all I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. It's very true. Amy Carmichael once said, you can give without love, but you cannot love without giving. There is no way to see the extreme worth of Jesus Christ, this better King, and offer Him a half of what you have. Offer Him part of your life. Tell Him you'll go this far, but that line right there, that's too far and I won't go any further. He draws attention to this woman because she gave everything that she had and He calls His disciples to do the same. Now there's one part of us we may say, man, that's, that is intense. What you're telling me, what Jesus was calling these men to do is to give everything. And what you're telling me is that to be a faithful disciple of Jesus Christ. Now don't get me wrong, they were not purchasing their salvation. He was not saying, to pay me back for what I'm going to do for you. None of that. What he is calling them to is to live in service to him. And those who live in service to this king give everything they have. Now, one side of that coin looks kind of overwhelming. You mean I have to give all of my finances and all of my time and my family and all of my talents and all of my abilities? And the answer is yes, you have to give everything. But the opposite side of that coin is what Asaph expresses in Psalm 73, verses 25 and 26. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. You see, this is the glorious thing that this better king was calling them into. He was saying, yes, I demand everything. But here's the flip side of that. It means that in this kingdom into which you are investing everything, it means that with all you are, you can glorify me, the better king. Isn't that incredible? It means that my life could amount to two copper coins and it bring glory and honor to God. It means that I don't have to have millions to give to God to matter in His kingdom. It means that my talents and abilities may never match up to someone who's got a bigger church or a bigger ministry. My family may never look as put together as someone else's. My skills may seem so minuscule in comparison to someone else's, but that's not the point. Jesus doesn't say, give me greatness. He says, give me everything you are, and you can glorify me with that. Beloved, that's incredible. That is a kingdom flipped upside down. It's the total opposite of this world that says you got to be great and give it greatness and then they'll sing your praises and Jesus comes in and He says, lose your life. If you think you need to be first, you're going to be last. And if you want to exalt yourself, you'll be humble. But if you humble yourself, I will exalt you. Why is that? Because it's rooted in the very nature of of the Son of God. This Jesus who's sitting there with them would give more than His livelihood. He would give His life. 
He's calling His disciples to give all that they are because He's going to lay down all that He is to inaugurate a kingdom that would flip everything upside down. And unlike us, He deserved all the praise. As you walk through the Gospel of Mark, you can't help but see this servant who's serving and you almost want to tell him, Stop it! Stop it! Stop serving! Sit on your throne! You teach with authority. You perform miracles with power. You shouldn't be serving. But he serves all the way to the point of death, even death on a cross. And then he calls us, he gives us the privilege. He says, now here's the privilege that I give to those who will follow after me. You can lay down all that you are, no matter how minuscule that might seem in the eyes of the world, and you can bring glory and honor to me. Well, we have a great opportunity now as we look to this table to remember what this servant did for us, this better king did for us, and while we're partaking of it, remember that we have a, we have a privilege, a, genuinely a privilege, between now and what this table anticipates, which is His return, we have the privilege of taking earthly things that we can't keep, a life that is, that is fading away, and we can invest it in a kingdom and somehow bring glory and honor to an eternal king. That's incredible. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for Jesus Christ, this better King that you sent. Thank you that he gives us this awesome privilege of coming to faith through his work on the cross, his death, burial, and resurrection. But then having come to faith, he calls us into a life of discipleship, laying down all that we are and having the privilege of investing in His kingdom and bringing glory and honor to Him, the better King. Amen.